right. Well, uh, I guess the. Uh, yeah. Um, well, but, uh, well. In Your Side is a podcast recorded on the various lands of First Nations peoples, land that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. While there's air that is breathed and water that nourishes and provides, ownership of this land remains unresolved. Respects are paid to elders past and present in the ongoing quest for self-determination and reclamation of land. Hello everyone, it's M. Real people know me as Michael. I just want to try to say M and see if that actually works, but nah, I haven't had enough internet cred yet, I don't think, but you know, I'll keep trying. Welcome to Thorn in Your Side. It's a podcast that has intentions of being a, a weekly episodic arising, but I haven't been holding myself very true to that arrangement in the last couple of weeks because I've been attempting to juggle, uh, well, my full-time job, a new job doing some platform work. And I'm also trying to knock off some further qualifications that are work-related. So I've been moaning and waxing on in previous episodes about knocking off post-grad studies and trying to get this one done. And it's like, oh, okay, this guy just seems to can't get enough of this study stuff. It's leading to me being quite busy and going around like a blue-ass fly, chicken without a head, and uh, whatever other Aussie metaphors I can think of that my incoming interviewee is going to find quite a lot of mirth at hearing. Bonus points for him actually understanding. <laughs> the other thing I wanted to just quickly mention before uh, I bring my interviewee in is there's been some news uh, well, that's of personal relevance to me. The bookshop that I volunteer at, Jura Books, encountered a, a dodgy incident where there's some demolition work that's happening next door. It's been found that the demolitionists are part of a contracting company that are, are what is termed as a phoenix organisation. So on paper, they've only existed for one year, but in reality, they've probably had a variety of different names. They fuck up, they do something illegal, then they go to ground and they re-emerge as another name, hence rising as it were, phoenix as it were. So in this latest drama with them, it appears that during their demolition work, they decided to want to punch a hole into the Jura books. One bookshelf went flying. There was one volunteer present at the time when the bookshelf went flying. Fortunately, they were nowhere near at the time. So very, very, very lucky. Since that time, the shop has been closed. Not sure when it's going to be opened. The collective of volunteers are going to figure out just how much the state can assist with remedy or uh, we can do uh, what has just been recently suggested to me, may or may not be the interviewee, <laughs> uh, where uh, I eat 10 brand muffins, find myself a copious amount of butane and meet and greet this individual with a nice present. I'll let the viewers or the listeners add two and two together to work out what that remedy entails. Uh, 
I will now bring my interviewee in and this guy's third shake of it. Uh, I believe third episode. It's yep. my great American mate and teacher and lefty and writer and doing all the the wonderful things um, despite our post Trump again. Jason, how's it going, Jason? Great. Thank you for having me yet again. It's an honor. No, no, thank you. Especially after that tip that you just gave me. <laughs> Leaving um, bags of shit when nothing else works. Yeah, 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 yeah. Way to go. It sounds like a, a very American course of action. And given that Australia is the 51st state, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm happy to, to kind of um, receive that advice. Well, you, you brought up something on, I think, online last week about the mullet coming back and realizing that that was a thing <laughs> among a certain group of people in Australia and America. I'm like, our two countries really are unified in so many ways. Yeah, how about that? Like, um... It's something that has been noticeable. I know that the head unionist in Australia, uh, the Australian Council of Trade Unions, uh, the general general secretary, head secretary, mm-hmm. Big Cheese, Sally McManus, she hasn't been too afraid to, to rock a mullet. I think it's something for very self-aware working class types. My fear, though, is, is that the bohemian types will co-opt it and use it for ironic purposes. We call them hipsters in Australia. Jason, do you guys have hipsters? We, we use the same we use the same terminology in the states, yes. Okay. Yeah. So um if you send to find a few types in Greenwich Village rocking a mullet then um I, I think that project has failed, my sense. Yeah, I always thought of the mullet as something beyond that that it was like so noxious to them that they wouldn't stoop to that level and it would make me depressed if like <laughs> that's a line they would actually cross, you know, like, because in New York among the hipsters, the man bun was a big thing for a while. I don't know if that was common in Australia. Yeah, we had uh, the man bun, but uh, that was a, a hipster thing. I, I think within the domain of hipster middle-class, which may not have had its um, progressive connotations. I get the sense that a couple or a few anti-vaxxer types started man bunning up and it's like, nah, that's gone now. That's a different hairstyle back in the day. No, it's it's funny, like the the crossover between people who are really into health food, and then they suddenly become anti-vaxxers. <laughs> and these assumptions that like this sort of like stuff can, you know, people don't assume it can go in fashy directions. Yeah, uh, it also um, explains why he also had a, God, why am I bringing up this as a fun fact? He, um, Hitler had a flatulence problem. It yes, was well yes, documented yeah. that he required charcoal tablets, which may or may not be a medically effective remedy, but that's what he did. So, yeah, he was uh, a genocidal maniac uh, and he farted a lot. As I like to tell my students, totally unimpressive in every way. Like, don't think this man was some kind of, you know, mastermind. No, anyway, no. Not that we need to talk about Hitler. No, <laughs> we can we can talk about more uh, contemporary examples, Jason. Yeah, that might be a better a better thing. We've got plenty of examples. All right. Well, that was an interesting segue. Uh, glad it went there. Uh, so, <laughs> let's talk about the post-Trump again, Jason. Trump again. So uh, I think that was the the contract that you entered into for coming on for this episode to see where things went since we last spoke. I know that um, we were anticipating an impeachment trial for Trump that happened post-presidency. So I get the sense there were elements within the current US political structure that kind of hoping that with Trump gone, it's all blown over. 
although still some sense of urgency to try to maintain a lot of the the political will mm-hmm. with trying to find some sort of social democratic justice, I suppose, legal justice with what Trump did and what he contributed to. Uh, but as we kind of found out, I think reality stepped in, the machine grinded away and uh, Trump did not get convicted, despite the fact that it definitely is, I think it's been, uh, I guess, culturally accepted. What Trump did was bad and what he created was bad. Your thoughts, Jason? Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of a thing we're going into it. Almost everyone said, well, look, we know the Republicans aren't going to go for this. Um, and the fact that there were like five of them who did Oh, sorry, seven who did was was kind of shocking um, in some ways. It's like the most bipartisan impeachment vote there's ever been. But obviously it wasn't going to be enough. And I, I just think there's a lot of people who have this really weirdly misguided faith in the system. They've watched The West Wing too many times. They've watched too many um, Disney films and they sort of think that bad will be punished, you know, <laughs> and that it'll just happen due to the decency of the system or something. And, and obviously that's not the case. You remember that movie, Dave? Of course, yes. Yeah, the one where Kevin Klein did an impersonation of a president within the movie. Okay. Okay, so that's 23 million times 12 months. Okay, good. Uh, unfortunately, money management's only going to get us halfway to our goal. In order to get the rest of the money, we're going to have to really start making some tough choices. So this is good. We're doing good. We're doing real good. We're on our way. Okay, let me just add that uh, to the uh, tally here. That'd be plus 47, 5 carry the 1 makes $656 million, which means we can keep the program. Do you feel a number of citizens kind of buy into that sort of stuff? So I remember seeing that when I was 17 and thinking it was complete bullshit. And I wasn't exactly the most sophisticated person at the time. I loved it, I, actually. I, I, I liked the movie. I just thought that that part was, like, ridiculous. Because um, <laughs> I understood that, like, you know, the, the federal budget was a slightly more complex thing. Because he brings in, like, his, his personal accountant or something to, to do it. As if it's this, like, easy thing to do. Or even desirable, but that's a whole other uh, thing about the balanced budget thing. You no, know, I think I think just I think that there's like the thing that I keep having to remind myself is that most people don't pay attention to politics, right? And most people's understanding of politics is very shallow. And every now and then I get into conversations with people I know who don't follow this stuff very closely, and I want to bash my head against the wall. And then I remind myself that the only way you get political change is by talking to people who don't know a lot about politics and. I think for a lot of people, there's this assumption like, oh, we know he did bad. A majority of the country thought he should have been convicted. I think after a month of Biden being in office, it's really highlighted how insane the Trump years were. I think a lot of people in the middle have kind of realized who were not that political or sort of like, oh, wow, this is obviously a lot, a lot better. <laughs> the last four years are really messed up, you know, but that doesn't mean anything when one of the political parties is just completely shameless. They're above shame, right? They're very ideological. At least where I grew up in the middle of the country, most people would rather cut off their left arm than vote for a Democrat, no matter who the person is. So that to me is a political reality that isn't going to change, that you have one party that's not really keen on democracy. They have the support of about 45% of the country, no matter what. And because the, the Senate is not apportioned based on actual population, every state gets two votes. 
So the system is set up in a way that disproportionately gives power to that 45%. And my fear is that a lot of Democrats, including Joe Biden, don't understand that in that situation, you have to be a bit more radical in how you approach things. We can keep the program. If you try to like play by this idea that the system is going to reward virtue and punish vice, like it's just not going to work. I guess a couple of things there. One lending itself to the Republicans, the other end lending itself to the Democrats. With the Republicans, um, the head of the elephant mob, Mitch McConnell, is that his name? Yes, the head of the Senate Majority Leader. Yeah, so that guy sounds like he's having his cake and eat it too, where he's publicly come out within the trial, within and without the trial, saying that Trump is bad, he's a bad man, he has done bad things, but then he will not commit to crossing the floor when voting regarding conviction as per the impeachment process. There's that. On the Democratic side, you're seeing... And uh, you definitely um, made mention of this in our last episode, Jason, that I think Biden has been given a mandate to come up with stuff that is at least left of centre. But I mean, I'm getting the sense in the last couple of weeks, uh, it's been about sussing out just exactly what the limits of that are. So he's doing some things, he's not going far enough in others. It, it seems to be what it sounds like. But I think the effective message here is that me putting my, my anarchist hat on the the, the limits of major parties and parliamentary structures are, are once again coming to the fore here in the US over the last few weeks. What do you reckon on that one, Jason? Well, it, it's that along with the way the system is set up so that like it's, it's not recognizing that you have to do things to get the voice of the people heard. Like So for instance, I don't know if you've heard of this thing called the filibuster. Yep, yep. The modern Senate is a giant non-functioning roadblock, as any senator on their way out will tell you. The truth is, the Senate doesn't pass many major laws these days. You could argue the last major social program passed into law was Obamacare a decade ago. And that low level of production is largely thanks to one incredibly annoying legislative tool. I'm referring to the filibuster. A filibuster is any tactic aimed at blocking a measure by preventing it from coming to a vote. If you are at all aware of the filibuster, you probably know it as that thing where a senator stands and talks endlessly. It's become an overused tool of obstruction, and in practical terms, it essentially means that a simple majority of 51 votes isn't nearly enough to pass legislation. If you don't get 60 votes for a bill, it's dead. With the increasingly partisan nature of the Senate, it's frankly no surprise that its usage has skyrocketed. We have reached a point where senators don't so much brag about what they've passed as brag about what they are going to obstruct. I have to always explain this one over and over again to my students because it's something that doesn't get talked about enough in the American news media, where it doesn't matter that the Democrats have nominal control of the Senate. If they don't get 60 votes on most bills, they don't get to pass because of this whole filibuster thing. And the easiest thing to do would just be to end it. If you look historically, it was created in the 1800s as a way for slaveholding states to basically prevent any legislation on slavery. And then for a long time, it was only really used by those same states to prevent anti-discrimination laws. And now it's being used by the opposition party on everything. But there are Democrats who are very, some of them are in the political middle, some are very old fashioned. Even Bernie Sanders at one point was defending the filibuster, which was kind of a disappointing shock to me. 
Well, every politician will use it as an adequate defence, no matter what their philosophy is, but at the end of the day, they're all participating within that system. So I guess they're playing with the rules of the game. Yeah, and I just, my thinking is that like this is something I've just been saying over and over again since Trump, which is the United States is in a great deal of trouble. It has really deep, longstanding problems, and the urgency that's needed to tackle them isn't really... I don't think it's being felt by the political class. Something that the, the Biden administration kind of disappointed me was it doesn't seem to be really pushing on student debt, for instance, as an issue. They've fallen back from that a little bit. And that's a thing where it wouldn't just be just to help people who are indebted, but also it would be a major boost to the economy. That's why I sort of scratched my head. Like you'd be putting money in people's hands and grow the economy. Why not do that? But there's sort of a lack of imagination, this feeling that, well, you can't break the rules. Would it be right to say, Jason, that initiatives like a universal healthcare system, the winding back of student debt, introducing more federal funding into education at all levels, including the, the tertiary college level that, that you've just raised there, that would seem like wide, dramatic institutional change within America. My sentiment is, is that it borders on the revolutionary now, would that be a big ask for Biden, do you think? Yeah, and I should be fair to him because he also has proposed making community college education free universally, which I think is a great idea. And also basically for people who aren't well off, it would make state college tuition refundable, essentially. So he's going towards that direction. The problem is that in America, if a majority of white people they feel that like their tax money is going to help people of color will immediately oppose things, even things that will benefit them. This is a thing that a lot of folks on the left in America actually don't really want to reckon with. They refuse to think about class and race in this country as being intertwined and try to put them in separate barrels. It doesn't really work like that. Well, is that the key? So, is that the key? Because, um, and, and I suppose this is where the, the criticism of Marxism in terms of a, an adequate class analysis kicks in as well. When you look at philosophically driven concepts on how class exists. So within the, the, the Marxism, you're, you're looking at stuff exclusively upon an economic, industrial, labor standpoint. Whereas I think the American experience, the American Republic experience, which is certainly transpired and seen itself after time of Marx, you're finding a whole bunch of things have happened in order for capitalism to persist. And I think one of the big issues there is that intertwining between race and class. And there is a, an ongoing maintenance of privilege there. Um, I would say middle-class privilege in saying that race and class are two separate things a confusion, a distortion, with the, also with the belief of separating church from state. A confluence there, as it were. You separate church from state, you separate race from class, everything has adequate silos, everything works. But you're seeing, uh, I think, some of the problems still persisting. I don't know. Hot take, Jason, or again, Aussie guy just having a rant? Um, You know, a little from column A, a little from column B, maybe. <laughs> um, but I think you're right about it. It tends to be a certain kind of person in the in the states who sees things this way for sure no and like these false dichotomies are very common and they don't help when when the complexity isn't really on the table yet again like i there's also this problem of like you know obviously there's a lot i get out of mark and, and so forth but when people start reading him as scripture and that like there's things that happen in the modern world that don't aren't accounted for in the scripture and they aren't willing to see like well we live in a different time and things have changed you know 
because the working class in America is mostly people who work in like stores and, and fast food restaurants, right? Not in factories. But there's this idea that like, oh, the, the worker is like someone working a punch press at a fuel plant. It's like those people still exist, but they're the minority. When it, we're talking about the working class in America, it's, it's the person who's stocking shelves, you know, at the supermarket. Jason, I might take this like on a totally different weird angle, but okay. you might like it because I'm actually going to talk about popular culture. So now's our chance. Now, have you been watching Batwoman? I haven't, unfortunately. All right. I'm, I get behind on television, plus my children kind of control the TV, so it, it sort of hampers me a little bit. All right. Well, to bring you up to speed, the latest season of Batwoman, I guess for a bit of context for, for listeners out there, it's a superhero show that's been going on, I think, now for uh, this is the second season. It's about a woman that's taken up the mantle of Batman after Batman Bruce Wayne has mysteriously disappeared. It lends itself a little bit to the the comic book version of Batwoman, but in many ways it's a reinvention. I find a lot of joy out of it because it really does explore a lot of progressive issues, despite the fact it's within the confines of cheesy pop culture. Oh, and maybe also the fact that in the first season, the, the lead playing Batwoman was an Aussie as well. Um, <laughs> I've got a lot of time for Ruby Rose. She's a pretty cool lady. Ironically enough, since that time, um, Ruby Rose, uh, for personal reasons, uh, decided to withdraw from the role. Rather than recasting or just canning the whole season, they've decided to just bring in a totally new character to assume the mantle. And for me, this is where it kind of gets interesting because... I reckon it's a very contemporary example or a very contemporary commentary on on where things are at. So the new Batwoman, again, identifies as lesbian, um, but she's black. She's an ex-con. She was framed, but she's definitely not ashamed to use all of the street criminal cred to be able to inform her vigilantism and um, also has been quite outright in... The character has been quite outright in... using her invisibility, social economic invisibility as a strength, which kind of plays off the whole Batman thing about a rich, privileged white dude fighting crime and doing all that stuff. So there's been an inversion. But all of this is interesting because it seems to be a very pop cultural expression of what's happening right now. You think about Black Lives Matter... You think about suddenly all these voices coming out of the tree in America that weren't necessarily so apparent in past. To me, this character is awesome. Like, although it's within the confines of cheesy pop culture, suddenly this character just comes out of nowhere. Recasting, the show continues. Yeah, I, I just really like it. It works for me on so many levels. You sure as hell don't know anything about that symbol. Trust me, I know I'm not a symbol or a name, or a legacy. Exactly, so why do you think you're worthy of wearing it? Because I'm a number. I am the 327th baby of a black woman who died during childbirth that year. I'm a $20 a day check to a group home. I'm inmate 4075 serving 18 months for a crime I didn't commit. But I can live with all those numbers because to mama who adopted me, I was her number one. But it turns out she's just one of a quarter million murders in this country who have not seen justice. And that is a number I can't live with. So you can have this damn suit back when her killer is dead. 
Brian Wilder, I think the character's name is, which isn't based on the comics. It's actually a totally new character for the show. Uh And uh, the actual actress? uh, Well, Jason, if you want to respond to all of that, but I might just do a quick Google, and I might use Google while we can still use it in Australia. Uh, Just one second. (laughs) But please, please respond. (laughs) Uh, I'm a dork, so I read comic books, and I'm aware of Batwoman from the comics. I haven't seen the show. yeah, it's interesting what you're saying about the role of this character versus Bruce Wayne. This actually came up with my students recently where I made a quiz that was like getting the review for a test and I threw a bonus question at the end, which is, which character do you think I'd like more, Batman or Superman? And most of them guessed Batman when it was in fact Superman. We had a very heated discussion about this, right? So that Bruce Wayne is a billionaire psychopath and his money would be better used like in Gotham, helping people out instead of him dressing up and beating up petty criminals. <laughs> Some of my students are very upset by this. And I'm saying, you know, Superman is like, he's a hardworking immigrant from another planet who could rule the earth, but he doesn't want to. He wants to serve other people. I'm like, to me, he's he's so virtuous. And they're like, he's boring. I'm like, he's not boring. We got to do a big fight about that. <laughs> I don't think Superman's boring, but I know people tend to. And, I, and again, I, I really dorked out. I said, well, I read the comics. And if you read the comics, then, you know, because they just knew of movies. I thought all the Superman movies are lame. I'm like, okay, yes. There hasn't been a good one since Superman 2, and they came out 40 years ago. But yes. Have you come across a, a one-off alternate reality story called Red Sun? This is one that I've been dying to read. My local comic book store didn't have it on the shelf the last time I was looking for it. And I tried to like get all my, my comics and graphic novels from two local stores instead of ordering it through Amazon or anything. Yeah, well, get your That's hands on it when you get the chance. There's also recently in the last year or so, there's been an um, animated film adaptation of it as well, which still remains quite faithful to the content of the comic. But of course, the comic still remains better. But it's basically a what if, like what if Superman was a tanky? Yeah, I've heard this. He lands in the Soviet Union, right? Yeah, What's yeah. He crash landed. Like, what? He crash landed in farmland um, USSR instead of farmland America. That's what I'm so intrigued by this. But like, is it is, is it still 1938? So is it like under Stalin where this happens? Yeah, yeah. So um, basically, it holds to the original timeline of when you know when the Superman comic first started. So he, he basically kowtows with Stalin, becomes a puppet for Stalin, and then doesn't become a puppet for Stalin because then he realizes the limits of Stalinism. But rather than reform, Superman just becomes hyper-Stalin. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, if you um, want a, a good argument there, Jason, about Superman above Batman, that, that, might, be your, um, that might be your subject matter. See, I should have, I should have brought that in with them. All I kept saying is the first Christopher Reeve movie is really great. You should watch it. <laughs> and of course, like me saying that to tell them to watch a movie from the seventies, I might as well be Grandpa Simpson at that point. <laughs> Christopher you know, Reeve. Sort of at me like, what are you talking about? You know? Yeah, yeah. I think um, yeah, that's that's taken me back a bit, that fellow. Um, but the actress's name as the new Batman, uh, their name is Jeff Davis Javicia Leslie. I hope I'm pronouncing the first name correctly. Just winding back to the original point, there's that. But I guess maybe to also counter your Superman versus Batman argument there, Jason, I do think about that uh, that quote from uh, the show House of Cards, that if you can't win the argument, you flip the table. And um, 
It feels like um, this new recasting bat. Well, not recasting. This new Batwoman character is a is a total f- table flip to to everything. But I go back to the, my political point where you know, using pop culture, it does seem like a, a, a fairly entry level, uh, soft understanding about where a, a good contemporary US class expression could be best understood. Because that that character, like it. It introduces a few things there. For me, it doesn't seem like any real philosophically driven narrative of disadvantage. It's interesting. I mean, yeah, and I mean, American pop culture just doesn't really like talking about social class. I finally watched Knives Out last night, okay, which which does talk about it, and I was kind of blown away. That's the murder mystery. Yeah, which is it's funny because I don't want to give too many spoilers. In a lot of ways, it's not a mystery. It is like it's. It's interesting because the things that are you don't know are not the things that you normally don't know in a mystery. Like you find out pretty early, you understand the circumstances of the death pretty early on, but there's things surrounding it that are shrouded in mystery. But it's very much a plot like Parasite where it's about someone who has to be like a servant for a very wealthy family that's like completely untethered from the day-to-day realities of people who aren't wealthy. Mm. And sort of seeing their pretensions skewered made me very happy not enough of that <laughs> well they become a murder suspect and it's like did they or didn't they but at the end of the day their social class is going to become a factor within trying to figure it out inevitably yeah but and all and all those characters are atrocious you know and the main character is like an immigrant woman from a latin american background and you know the family you know with the who's helping take care of like her mom and her sister very virtuous right and the, co- the contrast is pretty extreme, basically, mm. between these this sort of, like, rich family. And one thing I like about it, too, is, like, half of them are, like, Trump supporters. <laughs> and the other half the other half are, like, sort of outspokenly anti-Trump, but in the way that a lot of rich people in this country are, um, that their politics is very much about showing off how great they are and not really doing anything, you know? This was a big problem during the Trump years. And definitely nothing to do with an exploration of race and how that acts as a confluence within the class understanding. I think that film kind of does a little bit. Okay. It does acknowledge it more about immigration status, I think. But again, in America, that's also connected to race. Another interesting show that, that I've started watching, I don't know if you know about Jason, is Lupin. Oh, love that show. Yes. That's when my wife and I both just ate up. Yeah, I've gone two or three episodes in, but I particularly like it because it's about the the least likely demographic inheriting the role and using all of that to their advantage and and being able to inherit the Lupin mantle as a result. Yeah, for all the listeners out there, Lupin uh, is an institution in terms of French popular culture, character that's been around in in fiction for about 100 years, um, white gentleman thief. It was all about, I think, well, Australians have larrikins. I think it's probably the closest thing you're going to get to a French larrikin and a guy who sticks his finger up to authority by coming up with the heists. But the character has had a lot of interpretations and reincarnations over the years since. An interesting one involving a, an anime reconsideration of the, the actual role, which is a miracle it hasn't really become uh, mired within copyright problems, but somehow it survived. But... This Netflix series is the latest regurgitation or reinvention. And um, I go back to my, uh, my point <laughs> and uh, talking about this pop culture stuff where, again, it seems to be this um, 
examination of social invisibility and how that contributes, I feel, to a greater class discussion and also exposing some sections of capital T, capital L, the left, who mightn't necessarily give great consideration to the idea of race within class. My point. Yeah, and, and that's like such a big part of Lupin too, that handles that so well. Like the indignities that his father has to undergo both as a servant and as a black man, and how those are kind of treated like melding of the two, which you don't really see a lot of. It's interesting that these pop cultural examples have suddenly emerged and it does bring up this tension between how much of a social commentary these popular culture forms are trying to promote versus how much of a reflection they actually are. So I say it's a tension because it could be a little bit of both, but it's interesting to see these things happen because at the very least it gives two fellows like us something to talk about. In terms of greater American class commentary, that's me being a geek. Uh, I feel like pop culture is definitely well placed to to provide some sort of method to the discussion. But I suppose maybe we can talk more about it in future episodes, Jason, unless you've got anything else to add before we move on. All I would say is for people who are interested in this topic, there's an amazing book about the working class in America in the 70s called Staying Alive by a historian Jefferson Cowie. Before or after the song? The title of the book comes from the song. Ah, okay. So it's a, it, it came out, it's a history of American working class in the 70s. It was written in the, the 21st century, but he has this amazing chapter on pop culture and all this. He kind of talks about this period of time as a time when class was like pushed out of pop culture. He makes this argument that in the film Saturday Night Fever, that John Travolta character is trying to escape from his working class life, right? And then you have a lot of films that just present being working class is this like almost awful, shameful thing that you just don't want to be a part of and you want to get out and not associate with the people that you grew up with anymore. He sort of argues it's helping set up the 80s, basically, and Reaganism and and this sort of like pretending that, you know, anyone can be a success. And if you're not, it's somehow your fault. That was actually the title of the sequel, uh, the Malign sequel to Saturday Night Fever, wasn't it? Staying That's alive. right. Yes. <laughs> Which is a very 80s movie, right? The original is so 70s, it's very gritty and, and low lighting and it deals with serious topics. And then, you know, the 84 movie, it's like, you know, Frank Stallone singing Far From Over and John Travolta in a headband dancing around. Yeah, being a frustrated creative middle class type. <laughs> exactly. You know, maybe I should write about that at some point. I like to write essays about sort of like malign pop cultural artifacts. So maybe that's the one. I would actually have to sit and watch the whole thing, which I'm not sure I'm capable of doing now. <laughs> You could uh, <laughs> put the challenge to you, Jason, that you could watch that yeah. maybe as well as the sequel to Grace. You know, there are people I know who defend that sequel and they claim it's better than the original. <laughs> Often, but And I take it a little seriously because they sometimes defend it from a feminist viewpoint. <laughs> and it's got Michelle Pfeiffer, who I, I think doesn't get enough credit. Like, she's so good at what she does that, that people often... Is that one of those people who's so good at what she does that it looks so effortless that people don't kind of appreciate what she can do? Maybe. I don't know. But I heard it's crap. I heard it's terrible. 
Well, it might be one of those examples where um, a really excellent actress really just shows her chops by turning up in a bad movie and then, like, producers and, and, and movie powerful people watch it and it's like, well, that movie was shit, but that actress is awesome. <laughs> Let's get her. Yeah, I think she was in Scarface right after that. So yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like, that kind of propelled her on the way up. Yeah. Okay, well... There you go. There's a challenge for you, Jason. <laughs> nice. I'll accept the challenge. I'll, I'll I'll try to give it a go. Excellent. All right. Well, um, you write the article, and maybe we do another episode on it afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've already written something where I incorporate rock and roll high school and um, over the edge. So you know, and smoking the bandit, another piece. So I like writing. About ah, okay. And the warriors. Yeah. <sighs> also. Okay, well, uh, I might try and move on, Jason. Otherwise, we're just going right. to get stuck in a loop, I think. <laughs> I know, I know. We don't want to get geek out too much on pop culture. <laughs> bad idea, bad idea. The other thing I wanted to introduce for the remainder of this episode, Jason, was the stuff that's been happening in Australia regarding yeah. social media, digital media that, that I think you might like to buy into because I think it, it still remains within your frame of interests. So there was a new law that got passed within Australia um, that involves social media or internet proprietaries needing to pay media outlets in order to be able to provide media sources upon the said internet properties that promulgate. So for example, Google. Uh, so for the last couple of months, there's been a lot of argy-bargy between Google and Australia. At one point, Google was threatening to pull the plug for its access within Australia. There was an 11th hour deal struck between Google and two major, well, for Australia, two major media proprietaries being um, Fox or Murdoch Inc. And another one called Seven Media, which I think might be the American approximation of whatever CBS is these days because it involves mainly one of the big mainstream television channels within Australia as well as um, a few other uh, media bibs and bobs attached to it. But these days, they're the, the big fish in the Australian media pond. Google made deals with those two companies. Um, Australia backed off with Google. Um, it seemed to be hunky-dory enough deal. Um, but not in the case of Facebook, where Facebook decided to make a stand and now... Aussies are in the situation where we can't put news links on Facebook anymore, which is for me being an internet geek uh, activist type has um, kind of changed my strategy a little bit in terms of how I do my thing. Just a bit of an editorial here because I fear that because it's taken me a little while to publish this podcast episode that um, some of the stuff that Jason and I has discussed has aged a bit but I would like to just note at this point that since we discussed the issues Google, Facebook and Australian government have since sat down come to an agreement which again allows for Facebook to provide people with the option of doing news links on their Facebook pages and groups and whatnot so in many ways, we're back to the Facebook status quo and back to our previously scheduled podcast episode. So 
there's there's been that sort of stuff going on, and um, I mean, Jason, it's probably going to risk our conversation. Probably be going to become a bit more Aussie centric, but I, I do get the sense that there is a, a bit of an interest on your part regarding this development. I believe. Oh yeah, very much because um, currently in the states. A bunch of state level um, attorneys general have been filing a lawsuit to say that Facebook's a monopoly it needs to be broken up. So they're under the gun in a lot of places. Um, I was shocked that it was a conservative government that was doing this. And then I realized it might have been at Murdoch's behest. And I thought, oh, OK, I don't know if that's your analysis, because like like the role of Murdoch in this seems to be pretty shady, that maybe he wants to get his cut. And again, like I think that these social media companies make money off of like if the people aren't creating the things that they're, you know, allowing people to share, then they don't exist. And so I get the idea that they should be compensating others, but the way it's happening seems like it might not be based on the most virtuous ground. You're spot on there, Jason. I think a more progressive political apparatus would actually be looking to be a bit more bolshy and not only call Facebook to account, but Google, Twitter, YouTube, probably a few more big players, but they seem to backed off once Murdoch got his deal. It's no surprise uh, for any politically aware Australian because experience over the last 50 years now is that Murdoch gets his way in Australia. I think it's also a case of paying the piper because our current Australian Prime Minister, um, his election, I think... There was a lot of fealty paid to Murdoch. Murdoch gave the current Prime Minister and their party a lot of free puff press in the lead up to the election. I don't know if you're totally across this, Jason. Um, in the lead up to the election, it really did seem like a, a fait accompli that there was going to be a change of government. So with the election outcome, it was a great surprise that this guy got up. But as the couple of years rolled on, and particularly with this event that arising, it became quite clear exactly what this guy did in order to get up. That's how it seems to be. Murdoch strikes the deal, government backs off. But again, that is really playing to form over the Australian political media landscape over the last 40 or 50 years. And... What was also more perverse about it is, is that I can talk about it. We're in a podcast, freely talk about it. You're going to find this conversation very rare within the Australian mainstream, because if you do, if you're a career journo, there's a chance that your head gets cut off by having this kind of conversation in the mainstream. Look around you. You'll see two councilmen, a union official, couple off-duty cops and a judge. Now, I wouldn't have a second's hesitation in blowing your head off right here and right now in front of them. Now, that's power you can't buy. That's the power of fear. I'm not afraid of you. Because you think you got nothing to lose. But you haven't thought it through. You haven't thought about your lady friend down the DA's office. You haven't thought about your old butler. Bang! People from your world have so much to lose. So as you can see, it's a win-win. Big media gets propped up, big tech avoids being broken up, and big cunts get re-elected, because we'll have silenced our critics. The loser, as always, is you. I paint a very Orwellian picture here, but it's not all shrimps and barbies, Jason. 
<laughs> well, my thought about it when reading about it was it's sort of like Murdoch against Zuckerberg, which is sort of like Alien versus Predator. <laughs> and no matter who wins, we all lose, yeah. right? Like, yeah, it does seem like, as you're saying, like the real key is that like something needs to be done to regulate the tech marketplace or replace it as it currently exists. And I think there's more consensus moving in that direction. But then if it's being done in a way that's just helping out people like Rupert Murdoch, to me, it's, it's just perverse. But yeah, obviously, I don't know. I, I don't think that expropriation is going to be on the menu or anything ra so radical as to make it a public resource, you know. To me, it seems like it's it's been a milestone as part of a greater media corporate skirmish that has been unfolding, I think, in the last few years, particularly within Western nations. And ultimately, it's a battle between old versus new media. Uh -huh. So you're seeing a guy like Murdoch, who somehow is still alive. Uh, I suspect he's immortal. <laughs> he lives off the blood of all of the media proprietaries that he's bought out. Immortal Rupert, sorry, I could not let <laughs> <laughs> Mediocre. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, the guy just won't die. And um, he, I think he's, he's definitely set himself up for his heir apparent. Uh, I think the, the, the one that had some sort of progressive semblance, he's kind of pissed off. The other son has stuck around and he'll inherit everything. And I think he'll maintain the, the same conservative bastard mantra. This is about doing whatever it takes to be able to maintain one's marketplace. But... It's becoming increasingly an, an anachronistic market position that Murdoch is assuming because his head stake is print media. Uh -huh. Print media is a dying medium, but he is doing what it takes to be able to preserve it. You know, he, he's lent himself to going into digital media, still using the same print media platform. And I think his angle has been to try to monetize and user pays everything as much as possible and it sets himself up for conflict not only with consumers which is an easy conflict for him because consumers are powerless right they're just going to buy papers they're going to buy digital subscriptions whatever they'll buy into fox pay tv whatever it is you know with a corporate though where there's going to be a clash and you're seeing that with facebook where he has butt heads now with mark zuckerberg and um, Zuckerberg's bit back, but it's boring to you and I because this is two rich white dudes just basically um, having a pissing contest. But how does this play out? I don't know. It's like, uh, but at the end of the day, I still kind of go back to my uneasiness about relying upon rich people to sort things out for the greater social public good. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. And again, it just seems like, you know, again, the, the past 40 years of neoliberalism has just abdicated responsibility and, and just sort of accepted, oh, these are our overlords now. And, you know, just let them do what they want. It just, uh, it just drives me up the wall sometimes. I, th I think about like how, you know, Amazon doesn't pay taxes in America on the federal level, really, you know. And that, that just happens year after year and nothing happens with that, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And the, the same thing here is just like, it's, you, yeah. As you say, like this thing that should be this important discussion about how do we have like a, how does our media system actually, you know, 
fair and open just becomes a pissing contest between two billionaires. With that reluctance of rich people working within the public interest, there are consequences. And um, I know that there's been a, a recent incident within Texas that kind of lends itself to similar issues. Oh, yeah. You want to talk a little bit about that, Jason, before we tail things off? Yeah, and I'll try not to get into too much detail because it's kind of complex. So I'm a former resident of the state of Texas, which I think has a reputation internationally as sort of like, like cowboy <laughs> culture. But, you know, about 45% of the people who live in the state don't buy into that. It's just that the, the Republican Party leadership is really extremist. And they set up a situation where the state of Texas has an electrical grid that is separate from the main electrical grids in the United States. And so there was a really horrific um, snowstorm that came in. And it's normally a place where it, it doesn't, it rarely ever snows or gets below freezing um, in, in most of the state. And they had like really low temperatures and it caused rolling blackouts. And they call them rolling blackouts, but I, I have a relative who was without power for two and a half days, that's not really a rolling blackout um, when it's freezing. Several people died because of this. And basically the reason why Texas is not on that main electrical grid is that the energy industry you know, runs the state because the oil and natural gas industries are so huge there. They don't want to be regulated. So because Texas is not connected to the other grids, the federal government can't regulate it because it has to move across state lines for it to be federal regulation which is a dumb flaw in our outmoded constitution, which I don't have enough time to explain. Um, so essentially this means that you have a system set up now where they, they even set up people's power usage where they would be penalized for using more power during slack time. So there's gonna be people who are gonna be hit with hundreds or thousands of dollars of power bills for trying to heat their homes during the pandemic. And that there's an American football team called the Dallas Cowboys they're pretty much reviled by anyone who doesn't live in Texas and their owner. Oh, the they're Americans team, Jason. They're America's team. Uh, How dare yes. you? Uh, yes. Oh, uh, okay. I will admit to being a Cowboys fan as a child, but I was, <laughs> I, lived, I lived in a place without pro football because I was in the middle of Nebraska and my best friend liked them. So I did too. And then I, once I became an adult, I gave that up. Um, <laughs> But their owner owns a natural gas company. And I just saw a thing where he's his accountant was saying, oh, my gosh, we're going to make so much money off of this. Mm. So this, this system where people are literally dying because they can't heat their homes and there are power company executives who are billionaires who are going to be making money off of that. And then the leadership of the state of Texas, believe it or not, blamed renewable energy. Because they said, oh, the, the windmill stopped working because it was cold, but only stopped working because they, they weren't winterized. They weren't winterized because the power companies weren't regulated, right? As many people pointed out, they, there's cold parts of the country where the windmills still work because they actually prepared them for winter. It would seem that once again, Texas cronyism has watched the works here. Well, yes. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because this is something that has really always bothered me is that there's a narrative in America where it's like people talk about places that are politically corrupt. Um, they usually talk about, it's implied to be cities in the Midwest and the Northeast. And this narrative is long associated immigrants and people of color as somehow being susceptible to political corruption. The thing is, if you look at the state of Texas, it's ridiculously corrupt. When I lived there, I was shocked that like pretty much everyone who was on a state university board had contributed money to the governor of the Times campaigns. Rick Perry was his name. So you could be a complete blathering idiot when it came to higher education. But if you gave Rick Perry enough money, 
you would get on a, the board of a university. <laughs> Didn't they want to separate from your country at one point so they could maintain this tin pot scenario? There are people who say that kind of stuff, but they're a small minority. But literally, like... Well, they, they did during the Civil War. They did yeah. separate during the Civil War. Like, yeah, that's what I'm going back states. to. Like, when I, when I lived in Texas, I will admit that I occasionally saw bumper stickers that said secede on it. I remember seeing that one day, because I, I lived in, like, rural Texas, so this was, like, pretty... Rural East Texas, which is, like, very isolated and very conservative. And there were so few Democrats that I almost became a delegate to the state Democratic Party convention. Someone asked me, like, would you be a delegate? That's how few there people there were who weren't Republicans. Anyway, it's a very minority opinion, but like there, there are conservative politicians who will get a lot of mileage out of this. Rick Perry even went on television to say, well, you know, um, Texans would rather go without power than have to be, you know, regulated. It's like, I think the people freezing in their cars because their homes aren't heated would probably prefer have a heated home than for the power companies to get extra money. Yeah, I think um, Texas machismo only goes so far before you freeze your balls off. <laughs> I like that turn of phrase. It's a good one. <laughs> no, and it's it's sad and depressing because uh, it's a place I lived in. It's very culturally diverse and interesting, but it's just run by like the, the biggest pieces of crap you could possibly imagine. And, and again, it's this syndrome where in a lot of America, there are people who would literally rather cut off their arm than, than vote for a Democrat. And in Texas, the only way you become a, a candidate in the Republican Party is to be as extreme as possible. So it's, it's just another example of how the system is set up to like skew the outcomes. To, it gives people who are much further right than the center of the country, like outsized power with these dynamics. I know looking back in our last episode, Jason, there was a prevailing thread that seemed to happen there. And um, you can agree or disagree with me in that the need seemed to be greater regulation rather than reliance upon the free market to prevail because we're, we're coming up with endless examples where it doesn't trickle down and the social good is not being respected or recognised. Here, I think we're coming up with similar examples, but it seems to hark to this need for public commons. We were talking about digital media and social media what about an internet version of the public commons? At the moment, the closest thing we've got to it is something like Facebook, but it's not fulfilling its part of the bargain, which is all the more pressing considering we're still in pandemic times. But Facebook is the closest thing we've got to social commons. It's still within the thrall of private interests. There's the contradiction. We've also talked about the idea of, of a universal healthcare system, universal education system. Where does all of that come from? Is there a class interest for all of that? Is it a recognizable class interest? These are all the things that, that I surmise when having these kind of conversations. I am wondering if that's something to, to possibly conclude today. But again, thoughts, Jason? Well, that's, that's, those are some big questions. When I ask those questions to my students, I call that like the big money question, usually at the end of class. No, I, I've seen a lot of like very persuasive discussion about what you're saying that the way forward is to go big. It's, it's in, the, in the American context to say like, instead of tinkering around the edges, we just need universal healthcare, right? It's, and again, with, with, uh, with energy that was done in the rest of the country and Texas decided they didn't, they didn't want to. You know, it's actually being done with the internet in some places. Like there are programs, because like in a lot of rural areas that are isolated, they were having a hard time getting internet access. There are nonprofits that helped basically create like public internet, like a utility. And it's like massively successful. 
And it's to your point that that's what we sort of need to, it's such an important thing. Our, our public sphere shouldn't be at the mercy of a corporation. I think it's just, it's just ridiculous. And again, I think that there's like the beginnings of that are happening. The sense of like, we don't benefit when like private hands have some of these things. But then in the American context, the problem is, is that there's this ideological thing where if you just say the government about anything, then people will just automatically react negatively. So, because again, you end up having to use government regulation as a mechanism. And then that's just like, oh, the government's trying to tell you what to think. And then people have no problem with like, you know, the corporate media telling them what to think. That's a whole other thing, but like, I don't know. But I, I, I think that this is my frustration with a lot of the Democratic Party is that the, there's this need to really go big and just to, to really push the bigger picture of saying like, we don't have to live like this. Like we can have a society where people don't have thousands of dollars in debt, right? Because they got sick or they want to go to college. Other countries don't live like this. Like we don't have to. We're like, this country has so much money. It's really ridiculous. But I don't know, like I, I want that case to be made. I, I think it could get somewhere, but I also think it's going to take time and a lot of organizing. I think a lot of folks on the left think there's just sort of some magic incantation you can say. Like, oh, we're going to have this more equal society and that people will say, oh, that sounds great and do it. Because the labor union movement's been so crushed in this country, like you don't have that force, which I think is so essential for all this stuff. There's a lot of organizing that needs to happen before any of that happens. But I have hope. Like I, younger people in this country definitely are not enraptured by neoliberalism anymore. They're, they're not into it. So that makes me happy at least. For me, I mean, these are one or two things that present real class demands within the US. But from there, it requires a step back to say, what is the understanding of class within America and how one buys into it. And yeah, during this episode, we we touch upon the fact that um, that understanding is somewhat skewed and still mired in the, the sense of aggressive privilege. Again, maybe that's, that's more of a discussion that we can have in future episodes, Jason. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So where to from here? Like, um, shall we uh, shall we check in some other time, or I'll wait for you to write that Chuck Bean article that I've stumped you up for? What do, what do we do from here? Well, you know, I could I could come back when I've got I've got a couple of things I'm writing in the pipeline that that maybe would be of interest. Was shopping mall culture ever a big thing in Australia? Shopping mall culture. Yeah, there's a similar suburban sort of you know history between the U.S. and Australia that's shared, but. Um, well, I think the closest thing we have in Australia is probably what happens in Sydney and Melbourne and to a lesser extent, Brisbane, uh, where there is suburban sprawl and therefore shopping malls. I, well, I, I, I would hazard to say that, um, that within this last year or so, it's like people's big, big days out now are at the shopping mall because it's very hard to, to get anywhere else these days and have holidays and whatnot. So I would say particularly in the last year or so, definitely there's the, the shopping mall thing going on in Australia. All right. Yeah, I'm writing something I call about what I call mallstalgia because <laughs> in America, so many of the malls have closed because oh. again, online shopping and, and other forms of commerce have, have overtaken them. Oh, but there's all this, there's a lot of nostalgia people are having for this culture. Because basically what I found is that like people have nostalgia for a public space, even though it was privatized. Mm. Where you could just kind of go and be and see people. And now we don't even have that consumerized public space. It just doesn't even exist. 
people in this country just don't have places even before the pandemic where they would just go and and see each other you know and, and mix around together well that's interesting because um i think when you bring it back to what's happening within australia i think that's definitely raises an example of how Australia has its inferiority complex and wants to resolve that by trying to be cool like an American. And <laughs> you, uh, you see that, you see that with, um, with ongoing suburban sprawl and new suburbs being built. Um, you see that in Sydney. Like, I mean, I'm starting to do ride share and, um, I'm actually finding a pretty reliable secondary source of income by just basically mm -hmm. dragging all across all the new suburbs on the outskirts of Sydney. Uh, you know, uh, all that stuff is being built up. Everyone is buying into all that. I don't know whether you want to call it nostalgia or Americanism. Uh, uh, you know, uh, that, that, that's, that's stuff that is going strong in Australia. It is, malls do not die here. <laughs> <laughs> but like i'm saying they fulfill this weirdly public purpose even though they're completely privatized commercialized space like mm. countercultural people in the 80s saw them as like the devil you know um and i think capitalism has gotten so powerful that even that is something we don't even get anymore <laughs> I will add an extra thing in there jason and maybe this could be an episode in itself uh okay. within sydney where there is a very strong uh, capitalist element is within property developers and within New South Wales. Uh, and this also lends itself to donors to the current New South Wales government. Some of the big players are the ones that, um, that are property owners uh, within um, shopping malls, I ah. guess. And it's all based upon classic rent seeking where mm -hmm. they mm -hmm. buy the land, they set up a shopping center and all of their income basically comes through um, the rent that they get from all the shops that, uh, that arise within the centers. You've got probably three or four billionaires uh, within New South Wales alone that have gotten their wealth through that, that mode of operation and are very reluctant to lose that agency. Like we've talked about earlier, how at a federal level, Murdoch basically runs the affairs at federal level uh, at the risk of boiling things down to a lack of nuance. Within New South Wales, if you're on side with property developers, uh, as a politician, you'll get very far, you know? It's a very interesting way of looking at how our capitalism works and continues to lubricate cogs and whatnot within the economic system. But yeah, I, I guess we can bookmark that. If you don't get anything yes. written in time, well, we can talk about that for sure. Yeah, the piece is basically done. I'm just shopping it right now to see uh, who wants to try to take a, see if anyone wants to take a crack at it. Okay, well, uh, yeah, if you're in a position, give us a hoy, Jason, and uh, we're happy to do to do another episode. I can put a whole bunch of Stranger Things sound bites into our episode. <laughs> just thinking. <laughs> I like that idea. All right. Well, thanks for your time again, Jason. It's been great to chat. The big lesson that we've come out of today, amongst others, is that Trump's come and gone, but it hasn't solved much. Still, the same problems remain. The conversations continue. The potential for organization pervades. So on that note, thank you very much for your time, Jason. You're a cool American dude. You're an awesome guy. Hope to meet you in person sometime. But for now, 
So long. Goodbye. Stay safe. Thank you very much.